Our passage this morning is from Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. This is the word of the Lord. All right, one uh, quick announcement that we missed. If you are a student-aged kiddo, there's a uh, worksheet, or I shouldn't call it a worksheet. There's an activity sheet uh, in the back that you are welcome to go grab. Our uh, city student leaders, the Winklers, uh, made that for you, and they're going to continue to do that. So just make it a habit. When you come in, grab one of those, take it to your seat. There'll also be some markers and stuff back there, so you'll be all set uh, for that. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, jump into our text. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to receive it this morning, and that you would change us by it. Make us more like your beloved son through it. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. The City Church, we are coming to the end of our Galatians series. Um, We are on the home stretch. We're starting chapter 6. And that means we have only two more weeks left in this letter. And I'm very hopeful uh, for what this letter has accomplished. I'm hopeful that it hasn't just been another series to trudge through. Um, But instead, my hope is that uh, it's been a series where God has really taught you about faith through this letter. He's done that for me. We often think of faith like, uh, like a ticket, It's your ticket into the fairgrounds. Uh, It's your invitation to the party. And once you do the faith thing, you, you show your faith, well, then it's over and done. You're in. But Romans 1 tells us something really interesting. Romans 1 says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And it is revealed by faith and for faith. By faith, you come to understand the gospel, and it sets you free on a course of faith. All of Christian life is a life of faith. Do you have faith in? Can you you trust the work of Jesus? Is it sufficient to address every sin and every circumstance that you face? That is the Christian battle. Can you trust Jesus when you want vengeance? When you want to get back at the person who hurt you, is Jesus' death sufficient to cover that? Is it sufficient to calm your anger? Can you trust Jesus when your children have pushed every one of your buttons? Can you trust Jesus when your particular brand of sin is beckoning you, when that thing that really tempts you, when it's calling you, can you trust Jesus? Is his way better? All of Christian life is a life of faith. 
So can you trust Jesus and the challenges of life? Can you trust him with COVID? Can you trust him when things spiral out of control? Can you trust him when your job says you have to get the vaccine? For some of you, that's not a challenge, but for others it is. Can you trust Jesus with your job? All of your life is a life of faith. Is Jesus' sacrifice sufficient to address all of your sins? Is his teaching sufficient to address every choice and trial you face? Paul teaches us in Galatians that we have been set free from the weight of the law by faith, by trusting in Jesus who endured the punishment of the law. And he says we were set free in order to live free, to be free. That means that we don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. And Paul said that's what the law, that's how it was being used. The law itself was not bad, but it was being used to enslave people. They thought they could please God. They could attain righteousness by obedience to the law. If you trust in the law and your obedience to it, you're a slave. You're held captive by it. You have to fulfill every letter of it. To be set free also means we don't submit to our flesh. Our flesh wants to rule over us. Um, people think freedom means doing whatever you want. That's not accurate. Doing whatever you want is just being enslaved from a different direction. If you lock the door to slavery uh, to the law and leave open the door to slavery to the flesh, you aren't free. You locked one door, but you left the back door open, and slavery came from a different direction. Christ has set us free to live free. And freedom means risk. It means uncertainty. It means you're not sure of the path. It means you submit your plans to the Lord and you have to trust him to determine your steps. Freedom is a life of dependence on God. It is not life on a leash. Freedom is looking at a frontier of possibilities. It's looking out at a world that is ripe and ready to be harvested. Freedom is when the Spirit leads you through the wilderness to the promised land. Slavery, on the other hand, slavery is, well, at least Pharaoh gave us food and water. At least Pharaoh gave us all jobs. Slavery is fear. But God did not give us a spirit of fear or timidity. He gave us a spirit of power and love and self-control. Slavery doesn't leave Egypt because it fears the wilderness. Freedom walks out of Egypt in faith, unafraid of Pharaoh's chariots, unafraid of the Red Sea, unafraid of the wilderness, because it can see beyond all of that. Freedom looks ahead and sees the promised land waiting. Our culture, and many of us, we live enslaved. We are afraid. We're afraid of the government. We're afraid of a virus. We're afraid of what people could find out about us if they really knew us. We are afraid of taking risks, afraid of our own actions, afraid of failing. But church, Jesus came to set you free from all of that, free from every fear. He loved you even in your sin, and he is not afraid of your failures. Now, if I'm honest, I don't like preaching messages like this because they sting. 
I don't like to think about how enslaved I am. But I do very much love to think about how Jesus set us free. And how the people of Israel, when they left Egypt, they were free. But they were freer, they were more free when they arrived in the promised land. Christ has set us free, but he wants us to be free indeed. Free from the law, free from the flesh, free just like him. As we get into Galatians 6, the thing that I think God wants us to see is that free people are spiritual people. Free people are spiritual people. Now, spiritual, according to the Bible, uh, does not mean what people today say it means. Uh, People today say they are spiritual but not religious. Do you have a faith? Oh, I'm spiritual. All that means, sadly, is they are held captive to the spirit of the age. They are held captive to whatever demonic voice influences them, and they call it being enlightened. If the spirit of the age says boys are girls, girls are boys, men can marry men, women can marry women, uh, babies with heartbeats and toes and fingers are just clumps of cells that can be murdered. If the spirit of the age says all of that, the spiritual people of the age uh, take it all as gospel. They just repeat it. Spiritual, according to the scripture, means of the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. So people can either be of the flesh or of the spirit. You can come from one of two places. You can come from heaven above or from the earth beneath. Adam, our first father, he came from above. He was a son of God. We read that in Luke chapter 3. But what happened? He fell. He was a spiritual man. He fell and he became a man of the flesh. He fell from his heavenly calling and descended to a fleshly existence. Now, we are the products of Adam, and therefore we are of the flesh. But in Jesus Christ, we have also been raised. That doesn't just mean we will go to heaven when we die. It means we are the kind of creatures that are allowed in heaven. Heavenly creatures, spiritual beings are those allowed in heaven. Fleshly creatures are not allowed there. We are heavenly creatures because we come from our Father in heaven. Though we are still in the flesh, we live in the flesh, that is true, but we are new creations who are of the Spirit. We are spiritual people. We are not fleshly people. That's why Paul said in our text last week that the flesh has been crucified. Jesus Christ came to die so that our flesh can be put to death and so that we can live as new creations, heavenly people set free by the Spirit of God. God is free And his spirit is in us, making us free like him. In this text, Paul is going to show us what it means then to live free. As Americans, we think we know a lot about freedom. We think we have freedom coursing through our veins. But church, that's a lie. At one time, Americans thought more like free people. That's true. But now we enslave ourselves to whatever entertains us. We spend unbelievable amounts of time and money on Netflix and Spotify and Amazon Prime and HBO and Hulu and everything else we sign up for. We sign contracts with our phone providers so that we can constantly be upgrading because we have to have the newest thing. They have us trapped to always keep paying them and all we get is to borrow a phone for another year. We don't even own it. 
People are buying real estate in a fake world. I think you probably know this, the metaverse. People don't know how to live in this world, so they join a pretend one. We have become slaves of our own prosperity. People worry about the singularity. Maybe you've heard of that, the technological singularity when the machines will become smarter than the people. Now, I don't know why we're concerned about that because the truth is they've already got us trapped. The average American spends about five and a half hours on their phone every day. We spend a third of our time asleep and almost a fourth of our time on our phone. I was watching two guys the other day outside of my house. There were uh, guys working for the city. And one was standing there, and with one hand he was smoking a cigarette, and with the other hand he was playing on his phone. He was working hard. Uh, and the other guy who was with him, who was operating this big piece of machinery uh, that he was using to like uh, tunnel under people's houses, just a small hole, not a big hole, but either way, he was going under people's houses, and he's operating this large piece of machinery with one hand, playing on his phone, and with one hand controlling the joystick, and every now and then would look up to course correct. It's a bit shocking. We are not free people. We are slaves of our prosperity. We think we are free to do what we want, that we're free to play on our phones all day. And I think we need to reframe that idea in our minds. You are able to play on your phone all day. That doesn't mean you're free. There is a reason tech companies study how to keep people attached to their devices, because they want to control you. They want to enslave you. What then does it mean to live free? What is God's design for free people, for spiritual people? In this text, we see four signs of true spiritual freedom. And they are, number one, free people aren't afraid of someone else's sins. Number two, free people have nothing to prove. Number three, free people know who they are without comparing. And number four, free people give themselves away. So we're going to break apart our text and see uh, where we discover these things. Look, look out for them as we're going through the text. Verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We saw last week that we are to keep in step with the Spirit. And if we do that, here's what we should expect to see. We should expect to see people restored from sin in a spirit of gentleness. That means we should also expect to see people sin. If there's no sin, there's no need for restoration. So it's not that spiritual people don't sin, but spiritual people restore others in a spirit of gentleness. We have a tendency to be harsh with others when they sin. If you're wondering whether that's true, uh, think about how maybe you've uh, spoken to a sibling in the past or uh, spoken to a child. Uh, why would you do that? That was really foolish. What's wrong with you? Yeah, I forgive you, but I just want you to know how bad that hurt me. We want to tell other people about so-and-so's sin so that they look bad because they hurt us. I've heard of churches forcing staff members to get up and share their sins out loud in a staff meeting, broadcasting their shame for everyone to see, making a spectacle of them. But God says, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we take sin lightly. 
um, in a commentary that I read on this uh, set of verses, it said that um, it's the, the job of the pastor, not just the pastor, but it's the job of the pastor to protect the church from the unrepentant. Okay, uh, If you've got someone in the church claiming to be a follower of Jesus who is willfully sinning, who doesn't care that they're supposed to follow Jesus, they're just happy in their sin, that kind of leaven left on its own will spread. It will infect the church. And so then it is the job of the pastor to remove that person, remove that kind of leaven from the church and call them to repentance. But it is also the pastor's job and again, not just the pastor, it's sometimes your job, uh, to protect the repentant from the church. If someone repents, they should be restored in a spirit of gentleness. That means they should not fall under the ire of the church. The church doesn't even need to know about a lot of things going on. If somebody confesses to you a sin, how can you help restore them? The church doesn't need to know. There's some things the church does, does need to know, but that's really more like talk to a pastor about that. Don't, uh, don't stand up and shout it. Uh, but largely, uh, if it's a sin uh, that a friend confesses to you, how can you help restore them in a spirit of gentleness? So again, we are not taking sin lightly. Uh, I was at a church once where the elders were debating whether uh, to let a convicted criminal uh, attend worship services. And since he was a repentant man, they decided to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. They let him come. But given his crime, it would have been unloving for them to let him walk around the church unsupervised. And so they had someone stay with him. They took sin seriously, but they also took the call to restore him in a spirit of gentleness seriously. And so then it was up to the person supervising him to model that, to be gentle, to be meek, knowing that he, the supervisor, was also a sinner just like that man. It was just that that man was caught. So spiritual people, people who have grown and matured by following Jesus, will set an example for younger Christians and young children, younger believers, uh, by restoring those caught up in sin in a spirit of gentleness. It goes on to say, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Um, that means don't get prideful. And don't get lazy. If you uh, are restoring people in a spirit of gentleness, don't start patting yourself on the back. Good job. Really good. Right. That would be trying to bless yourself for your own good works. Don't do that. Um, keep watch. Don't become lazy. Don't start thinking, I have done such a great job of restoring people. I'm pretty much Christian varsity. Um, I can kind of kick back and relax. I don't think any temptation is coming for me. So don't be the watchman on the tower who thinks this city is so strong, I don't need to stay awake. It's an impregnable fortress, so I can just take a nap. No, it's saying keep watch on yourself. Verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It was uncommon in the ancient world and perhaps really is still today for a higher class person to help someone with a burden. Uh, why did Simon of Cyrene not want to help Jesus carry the cross? Because he didn't want to be associated with that burden. That's a scary burden to have to bend down and help pick up. He didn't want to do that. To help someone with a burden is to stoop down to their level. To refuse to help someone is to stay at your own level. It's a way of exercising dominance. I am above that thing, that person. And Paul says, bearing one another's burden fulfills the law of Christ. 
It's interesting that for all of the talk that's been done about being free from the law, no longer being under the law, now Paul is saying, fulfill the law. The aim of God's law has never changed. God's law is and has always been holy and righteous. The aim of God's law is love. That's why the greatest commandment is to love the Lord and to love your neighbor. God gave his people a law that was meant to teach them how to love their neighbors, how to love each other. Paul's point throughout this letter has been trying to attain righteousness by obedience to the letter of the law is futile. He says in Romans that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter of the law will not make you righteous. It will prove how sinful you are. The Spirit who gave the law will make you righteous and will give you a new heart that understands the purpose of the law. We are supposed to fulfill the law of Christ, which is the spirit of all of God's law, that is to bear one another's burden, to love them even at great cost. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This is a humbling verse. It puts us in our place. What are you made out of? The answer is nothing. God made the world ex nihilo, that means out of nothing. And then of the dust of the world, he formed man. We came from the dust and we are told to dust we will return. We are nothing. And so if we treat ourselves like something when we are not, we're lying to ourselves. God is saying man is nothing. Man is like grass. We spring up, we get scorched in the heat of the sun, and then we disappear we're nothing. But in a little while, we're going to see what God does with that nothing. Verse 4, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. That's kind of a confusing verse. Uh, the NIV is helpful here. It renders it this way. It says, each one should test their own actions then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. And the idea is, if you have to look at someone else's work to determine whether yours is good, you're doing it wrong, okay? Um, if I say, well, you know, I'm not doing all that so-and-so is doing. I mean, he's doing a really good job, but I'm doing way more than that guy, right? Um, my, my boast there really has nothing to do with what I'm doing or my faithfulness to the Lord. It has everything to do with my neighbors. Um, now, you might be saying, that's confusing. I thought we weren't supposed to boast. Doesn't Ephesians say, so that no one may boast? Well, yes, Ephesians does say that. Uh, but it's not that we're not supposed to boast. It's that we're supposed to boast in the right things. And we're not supposed to boast in ourselves, in our own ability, uh, or in our own uh, goodness, our own righteousness, because we were just told we're nothing. So we have nothing within ourselves to boast about. Uh, we, we don't boast to build ourselves up. If you do that, you are enslaved to something. We aren't looking to brag about how great we are. We can boast or take pride in what the Lord has done in us or through us. So if you come up to me after a sermon and say, that was a great sermon, I'm not dropping hints, okay? If you say it today, it doesn't count. I won't believe you. 
Um, but, but if you were to come up to me and say that, uh, and I say, yeah, well, I'm really smart. Uh, that's the wrong kind of boasting. That's, that's me being enslaved to my own self and what I want you to think about me. But if you were to say, yeah, that was a good sermon. And I say, thank you. Uh, the Lord really taught me this week um, what it means to be free so that I could preach a message of freedom. That's acknowledging that maybe it was good. But that wasn't because of me. It was because of what God did. That's the right kind of boasting. Or perhaps if you're honest in your job, you're honest and your coworker lies and it gets them promoted. Right? You can look at what you did and you can actually boast. Not outwardly. I'm not saying I'm, I'm righteous, that guy's not. But you can boast knowing uh, that you honored Christ with the truth. And you also know that if you weren't following Christ, you probably wouldn't have done it. You'd have probably just tried to lie better. Christ has taught you to love the truth in that situation. And you can boast that he's done that in you. You can boast in the right way, and you should. And you should not boast in the wrong way. This verse is saying boast in truth. Boast in what God has done in your work, not in what your neighbor has done. Going on verse 5, it says, For each will have to bear his own load. This is another confusing verse, because Paul just said, uh, bear one another's burdens. And now he's saying everyone has to bear their own load. Well, which is it, Paul? Um, those two words, load and burden, are not the same. Um, load uh, is also the same word for cargo. So if you think of it like um, you, you took a, a suitcase on a plane, or you're getting on a, a cruise and you take your, your bag, your luggage, right? Whose luggage is it? It's yours. It's your cargo. You brought it. That means it's not the captain's responsibility. It's not the other uh, passenger's responsibility to carry it. Okay? It's yours. Your burden. Your, your, your cargo. Your load. Okay? But, um, uh, so I guess think of the difference maybe this way. If you're unloading groceries, right, you, you open the trunk of the car, you're getting your groceries out, um, and if you, uh, particularly you men, if you're a typical man, um, you want efficiency. And so you don't want to take lots of trips to the car and back and forth. So you load up your arms with everything that you can carry and maybe more, and you try to walk into the house that way. It might get heavy. I'm not saying that for you. It's probably never been too heavy for you, uh, but a guy you know. Um, and, and you might say, hey, I actually could use some help. Will you grab a couple of these bags? That's somebody helping you bear your burden. That's appropriate. That's good, okay? Um, but if you, say, go on a, a camping trip and um, you get uh, your friend We'll keep it as a friend. Your friend gets winded, and you realize, well, hey, you've got a whole bunch of luggage uh, that you're trying to, to carry up you know, this, this path. Let me help you. I will take some of that luggage for you. And your friend sits down. Okay. Yeah, thanks. I'm really, really winded here. Um, if you'll actually just take it all, and if you'll take my kids up the way too, I think I'm just going to head back to the car. Y'all have a nice weekend. That's the wrong way to do it, okay? Uh, your kids are your responsibility. Uh, you, they didn't go on this trip with you to watch your kids and to carry all the luggage. They wanted to do this with you. So you are responsible for what God has entrusted to you. If God has given you a job, you're responsible. That's your load to bear. If God has given you a room, especially you little ones, if God's given you a room, it's your responsibility to make sure it's clean. My wife and I tell our kids all the time, those are your toys, 
you can put them away. We, are, we can help you. We're allowed to do that. Uh, but it's your responsibility. It's not mine. If God's given you a spouse, you're responsible for the marriage. If he's given you children, you're responsible to raise them. Everyone has to bear the responsibility, the load, the cargo that God has assigned to them. And it is true that at times you might need help. And I want to brag on you guys for a minute. I'm going to boast in you guys because y'all are wonderful. And y'all really do a really good job of that. You, you help one another. You bear loads. When somebody has a baby or breaks a bone or has surgery or whatever it is, you all are there. You're there to provide food or to help clean. You all jump in to help. And that's really, really wonderful. God has done a great work in you all. Um, if you lose your job, perhaps, so you can't pay your bill, okay? Whose name is on the bill? It's still yours, right? It's your responsibility. But can people help? Can somebody help bear that burden? Yes, they can. When we set up the Benevolence Fund, you all were super generous and contributed to that. And we got to bear the burdens of people within our church. And it was beautiful. So we can help one another with burdens. Maybe we can help get rid of a burden, okay? Um, another example, uh, some of you are part of Samaritan Ministries. That's a wonderful ministry. Uh, they, it's people helping uh, one another bear the burden of medical costs. It's a very cool organization. So the responsibility is yours for something. So it's what God has assigned to you. And God's going to ask you whether you were faithful with what he gave you. And you're not allowed to point to your neighbor and say, well, they didn't help me. Right? They, they, they could have covered me. They could have helped me. God's not looking at them. God's going to ask them about what they did. Okay? We don't get to look up at the neighbors who didn't help us. We don't get to look down on the neighbors that we didn't help. God is saying, what did we do? Okay? What, did, did you bear your load faithfully? Uh, and then verse 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Um, this is a reference to pastors specifically, um, those who teach the word. Uh, it is right for them to make a living doing that. That's what Paul's saying. Let, let, let those um, who are taught the word share good things with the one who teaches. And I'm not talking about a luxurious uh, life. This is not where I'm going to try to manipulate you to, to give more. Um, you can watch reality TV shows about pastors who live luxurious lifestyles, and I would tell you, don't do that. They're trash. Um, but they exist. Um, but a pastor who can devote time to the word, to his congregation, to prayer, will have uh, greater effectiveness, uh, greater impact than the one who has to uh, throw something together last minute because he was busy at his trade all week. It is not wrong for a pastor to be bivocational. Totally okay. Um, it's just not as effective. So it's good for Christians to share all good things with the one who teaches. And our church, once again, is generous. You all do share. Uh, most, of you, uh, most of you tithe, uh, which is actually saying a lot. A lot of churches, that's not the case. Um, and that pays for my salary. It pays for uh, the other members of our church staff and everything that we do. You all share, and we're very grateful for it. Uh, even though this is specifically about those who teach the word, the spirit of what this is saying is much bigger than that. It's saying, share with the one who does good to you. In a few verses, Paul is going to say, do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. So there's reason to share in the church. There's reason to share beyond that. Now, having considered the text, what does it teach us? It teaches us 
about the life of a spiritual person, a free person. And I hope you caught those four things that I mentioned earlier. I hope you caught them as we were going through the verses. Uh, We're going to take a few moments and also just break those down as well. So, number one, free people aren't afraid of someone else's sins. Uh, That was verse one. If anyone was caught in a sin, the spiritual person restores him gently. Caught may be like the woman who was caught in adultery. She was caught in the act. Uh, It may also be like someone who was caught in a trap. Uh, or think of like a, a bug getting caught in a spider web. Uh, it came upon them suddenly. They didn't see it. They got caught by it. People get caught up in sin, and when that becomes known, um, people have a tendency to distance themselves from that person. And Paul is saying your aim should be to help the person out of the trap. When someone confesses really gross sin to you, how do you respond? Do you consider your own sin and what traps the Lord has freed you from? Jesus was not afraid of other people's sins. Do you remember the Pharisee uh, who thought that Jesus really must not be a prophet? Uh, Because if he knew who this woman was, he would have never let her near him. But Jesus says to the Pharisee, a man had two debtors. One owed him $10 and the other owed him a million dollars. And he forgave the debt of both. Which one is going to love him more? And the Pharisee says, well, the one who had the larger debt. And Jesus said, that's right. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. When the woman was caught in adultery, what did Jesus say to her? He said, Neither do I condemn you. If you remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the tax collector beat his breast, refusing even to look up to heaven because he knew his sin, and Jesus said, that man went home justified. The woman with a discharge of blood, Jesus wasn't afraid of her uncleanness. He calls her a daughter. And she went away healed. The Lord is not afraid of your sin. He restored you to true life in the midst of your sin. He came near to you. He didn't make you pay for it. He paid for it on his own. Spiritual people, free people, are not afraid of other people's sins. Jesus was not afraid of becoming unclean by getting near us because he knew how to make us clean. In church, so do we. We know how to make others clean. We take them to Jesus, and so we shouldn't be afraid of other people's sins. Free people have nothing to prove. It's verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. If you're worried what people will think about you, if you lower yourself to help someone else, it means you have something to prove. Another way of saying this is free people stoop. They stoop down to lift others up. And this couldn't be more true than when we look at Christ. Philippians says, He who was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but stooped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Jesus stooped down out of heaven for us. It's into his likeness that we are being transformed. He is not afraid of people copying him. He stooped 
because he was free and he had nothing to prove. He didn't need to keep others down in order to prop himself up and make him feel special. He didn't need to stand high and mighty so that we would know he is God. By his stooping, we understand that he is God because he cared to lift us up. He showed how great he is by raising up ruined sinners. The Bible tells us that not only did he stoop down to come to us, that he also raised us up to be with him. We are told that we will share his throne with him. He didn't just take us to glory. He also said, come to my throne. I want you there too. He has nothing to prove. That's why he is not afraid to share all that he is and all that he has with us. He stoops. Free people have nothing to prove. They're willing to stoop. Third, free people know who they are without comparing. We see this in verse 4. It says, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. I wonder, do you compare yourself to your neighbor? Do you compare your gifts and your skills to your neighbor? Do you wonder why they're so good at something and you're not? Do you wonder why everything seems to work out well for them and not for you? Do you put your neighbor down by talking poorly about them? Are you regularly comparing lives with them? Well, their children read already. How come mine don't do that yet? I must be a bad parent. You see how their kids are acting? What's wrong with them? I won't be a parent like that. How come they had life figured out at 24 and I'm 34 and I still don't know what I'm doing with my life? What's wrong with me? Their house is so beautiful. Mine feels like a Motel 6. They've made so much money and I'm barely getting by. Does God love me? They got a promotion and here I am happily working away. Boss doesn't even notice. When you see someone experiencing hard times, do you joke? You joke about them and how, man, they really must have messed up. You start acting like the Pharisee who said, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. Does any of this sound like your internal dialogue? Do you have to boast about someone else's success because you're ashamed of your own or your lack thereof? Do you have to put others down to build yourself up? Free people know who they are and they do it without comparing. Are you free from the allure of success? Are you free from the temptations that want to have you? Are you free from wanting everyone to adore you? Are you free in your parenting or do you live in constant anxiety? Are you free as a person or do you run from your own shadow? What has its hooks in you? Some people's life is a lot harder than others. Some is better, but that doesn't change who you are. Jesus came to set you free. Hebrews 10 says that when Jesus came into the world, he quoted Psalm 40 saying, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God, which means he will never be the Father. He'll never be the big man. And he's not upset about that. The Father sent him to be a sacrifice, and he said, I have come to do your will. Can you look at your life and the lot that God has assigned you and say to God, I have come to do your will? Or as we sometimes sing, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. 
Free people, even in hard times, will look at their lot and say, it is well with my soul. Lastly, free people give themselves away. We see this in verse 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. This isn't, again, just about pastors. This is about the heart of the giver. When you give, whether to the church or to something else, can you do it freely? Are you a cheerful giver? Or do you doubt and second guess, wondering, am I going to need that? Do you give begrudgingly? Is your sharing motivated by guilt? This verse says, share all good things. So it's not just talking about money. When you cut the birthday cake, do you cut it in such a way so that you get the piece that you want? When you're serving out the dinner, do you serve the plates in such a way so that you get the cut that you want? Do you subtly shift and maneuver things to get your way, all while looking selfless and humble? Do you offer to do the dishes because you don't want to deal with the kids and it allows you to stay on your phone? Your children are watching. The way you share is the way they will share. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe him? Free people are not trapped by the cares of the world. Free people see all that the world has, and they can use it to serve the Lord. Free people give themselves away. Are you free? Do you give yourself, do you give yourself away? Where are you serving? That is not an attempt for me to get you to serve the church. If you don't have a place that you're serving and you want to serve the church, we'd love that. But free people give themselves away. Are you serving somewhere? Jesus gave everything away. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And God saw it, and he delighted in it. And it was a clear display to the Father that his son was the perfect man to be king. He was exactly the kind of king that you'd hope for. He was the perfect king. And so God raised him up vindicating him, giving him victory over all his enemies. Jesus gave everything. He was the infinite God. He is the infinite God. And he gave all of himself. He gave everything. And in response, God gave everything right back to him. The Bible tells us that when Jesus uh, gave himself, that again, God raised him up. Uh, and that he went to appear before God. That's the ascension. And at the ascension, when Jesus uh, was there, uh, think of it like, uh, like a general coming to uh, his king to tell him what happened in the battle. And Jesus came to the Ancient of Days to say, we won. We did it. It's all yours. And the father says to Jesus, no, son, it's all yours. The father gives everything to Jesus. He gives all of the nations to Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we are told that eventually everything will be under Jesus' feet. And he will stand atop everything. I think of it kind of like a mountain. Jesus is going to stand on the top of every person, nation, every throne, every iPhone, every home, every shop, every dollar, every blade of grass. He's going to stand on top of all of it. All that stuff's just going to be piled up. And Jesus will be standing there on top of it to say, it's yours. He's going to give it right back to the Father. All of the stuff did not capture Jesus. He had it all and he was free and was willing to give it right back to God. He's free with it. He's free without it. He's free, and he wants us to be like him. He is turning us in to his image. He's teaching us to do what he did, to do away with the flesh, to live free. Now, I said just a moment ago, Jesus gave everything away. Jesus, who is the infinite God, gave himself away. He submitted to death. God died. And by giving himself, he gave everything. 
But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice in closing what he bought with his everything. In verse 3, it says, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Okay? We're nothing. We saw that. Jesus gave everything to buy nothing. And here's the extraordinary part. He gave everything to buy nothing so that nothing could become everything. That's your future. That's what the gospel provides. By trusting in Jesus, you acknowledge your nothingness. You become like him who became nothing. He was everything and became nothing. He became human and he died as a human. He treated his own infinitude as nothing. He gave it all. We call that bankrupt. He lost it all and he gained a bunch of nothings. And God took all that nothing and he raised it up and it became everything. What do I mean by everything? What are we? We are the body of Christ. We are united to God. You are in Jesus Christ. Ephesians says, we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are his body. We have become everything. God took everything and gave it away to buy nothing so that nothing could become everything in Christ. That's how the gospel works. That's what God is doing in you. You will forever be like him. You will forever be with him. He took your nothingness. He bound it to himself and he made it worth everything. And he is using this life to set you free from all of the other nothing. All of the cares of the world, all of the flesh, all of the chains that hold you back. He's setting you free from all of that so you will be ready for everything that he has prepared for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your great kindness. Why you should have given Christ to ransom nothings like us is grace upon grace. It is incomprehensible. And further, for you to share the inheritance of Christ with us is unimaginable. Thank you for pouring out such grace upon us ruined sinners. We will never be able to thank you enough but because of your kindness, it is our delight to give you everything that we are and say, have your way in us. It is well with my soul. Lord, take us and use us, fashion us into the image of Jesus, for there is nothing greater. Please use this text and by your spirit's power, teach us to be free like our Lord. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.